At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you again, and uh, greetings from the Troy campus and from Pastor Chris, and I just want to say thank you for um, your hospitality today. And what I want you to do, I want you to put your uh, thumb in Psalm 33, uh, because that's where we're going to be today. And as we do that, I just want to reiterate to you that we are coming from the perspective where uh, the creed is not our gospel right? The Word of God is our gospel, Uh, but it is creeds like the Apostles' Creed that help surmise for us standard beliefs that have been held by the church for for ages. And so here's the way creeds came about, right? There were debates within the church, and a bunch of people got together who were leaders in the church, and they basically worked these things out through uh, what we call councils, okay, theological councils. One of the first that you see is in actually the book of Acts, where in the book of Acts, they're trying to decide if uh, someone needs to become a Jew before they become a Christian. And so you see the first council there in Jerusalem hammering out that theological issue to, to help people understand that, uh, no, you don't need to become Jewish before you become a Christian. And so that got worked out. But through the ages, different theological debates would rise up, councils would come together, and statements would be written and developed, encompassing what the church believes the Bible taught. And so it became very helpful. And as uh, Joel, I love that illustration, where you're not an illustration, the real life, like church in South Africa today has already recited the Apostles' Creed, identifying Uh, the truths that we believe are taught in Scripture. And that's the key there, identifying the truths that we believe are taught in Scripture, right? Scripture is the basis for uh, what we believe to be true. Well, as we look at this uh, this idea here, I want to give you a roadmap of of where we're going here. The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, Part 2. We'll be in this series for a few more weeks, several more weeks, in fact. And uh, the big idea today is that God the Father gives us every reason to worship Him. And we'll look at that as it relates to Psalm 33 especially, but here's the three main points. His power is seen in making all things by his word. His wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. And his love is seen in delivering those who hope in him. Now we're going to look at that, and what Psalm 33 is, is it's a great demonstration of that part of the Apostles' Creed that encompasses I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Father Almighty. Now, we are living in a culture that is confused, and the confusion, all it does is it just looks different for each generation, right? But this is a particularly interesting, because this is the generation that we live in, and one of the things that our culture is becoming increasingly confused about, of course, is this idea of gender, 
And so we can sit here today and we can recite the Apostles' Creed, and there would be some who would be looking in on what we're doing, and they would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I believe in God the Father Almighty? I believe in God the Father Almighty? Well, to highlight this, you might say, well, this is crazy. Is this really happening in the church? It is. It is. Now, my wife, I love her. She asked for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal for Christmas. <laughs> so kind of tells you what kind of family we are. And uh, what it is, it's all pretty much digital now, except for Saturdays. And so Saturdays, we, we put on a coat right now. We go out, and there's actually a print weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. And so there we were, trying to be an intelligent family. And uh, here was the headline in the Wall Street Journal weekend edition a few weeks ago. Must God have gender in our prayers? Must God have gender in our prayers? And here's, uh, let me just read to you a little bit of this. So what's happening is the Church of England actually right now has been debating this issue of whether to use basically gender-inclusive language in our theology, in our Bibles, in our prayers, and so forth. And this kind of summarizes it well. The person was quoted as this. There are two religions within the Church of England vying for supremacy, two fundamentally opposed conceptions of God, said the Reverend Lee Gaddis, director of church society, a group that promotes traditional teaching. One is the God of the Bible, as traditionally understood by believers throughout the centuries and all over the world, including South Africa. The other is a flexible God who changes depending on the spirit of the age. Now, that is a very important distinction that he's making. You can tell which side he's on, right? He's not, you know, holding back any punches here. But it goes on to say, to quote a woman by the name of Bridget Nichols, a consultant to the Church of England's liturgical commission, says the church has no plans to abolish traditional language in worship, but that some are seeking to widen the repertoire of ways to talk about God in order to welcome the wider range of believers. Well, here's, that's code for we want to get rid of the old and we want to come in with the new, all right? Because listen to what what she says, if the imagery that surrounds God always seems to be made to be male and always seems to be at least by implication white and always seems to suggest physical and cognitive perfection, where are the spaces for people who come more hesitantly to church, perhaps struggling with their own gender identity? So what she's proposing is we get rid of the male language in Scripture and our worship services in order to accommodate those who believe they were born a male but are now a female and vice versa and somewhere on the gender spectrum, which, by the way, there is no spectrum. And so what's happening here is that the way this begins to play out is very subtle. It's very subtle, and so you could even go into a, a very liberal, and I say loosely, church in our area, and you might see somebody being baptized, most likely a, a, a baby, and you would hear the words, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Now, just think about that for a moment. Is that a, is that a big deal? Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Well, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because for ages, how has the church baptized people? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's these subtle changes that are infecting the church. 
And what it's doing is, it's the church seeking to take the church and turn it into the culture instead of the church taking the culture and changing it into a redeemed, sanctified, and saved people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so these subtle changes, what they do is they creep in to the church and they tickle people's ears. And so what happens is the church begins to become more liberal. And before you know it, it's not just a matter of we now baptize in the name of creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. Now your God is whomever you choose that to be. We have a Bible, but it's really just a suggestion. We have faith, but faith is really whatever it is, is to you. Yes, the Bible says God the Father, but you know what? You can, your God can be God your mother. And so these changes are happening, and so we come to something like a creed, the Apostles' Creed, that affirms God the Father Almighty, and we read that and we say, this is what the Scriptures teach, and this is what we should be doing as the church, seeking to conform the culture to a redeemed people through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, instead of saying, well, I wonder how someone who's struggling with gender identity might feel within our church. And don't get me wrong, we should be sensitive to that, right? And we're not saying you can't come, but what we are saying is we will not conform. And so all of this is very important here. And what it's doing is it's just highlighting what's going on in our culture, which, which just basically screams, hey, you do you. You do you. You want God to be a mother? You do you. I'll do God as father. You do you. You want church to be, you know, just, just coming and, and sitting in your living room all by yourself saying you don't need a body of believers? Hey, you do you. You do you. But what happens is, is that when you do you, you is sinfully flawed. And what happens is we need to take that sinfully flawed self and we need to have it be transformed by the body in the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. One Dutch reformer, a theologian named Herman Bobnik, said this. He said, he, referring to God, is the truth and, it, and its absolute fullness. He, therefore, is the primary, the original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in all areas of life. Basically, what he's saying is instead of you do you, instead of your truth is what's truth, even if your truth contradicts with my truth, the truth is that we can both have our truths, which really isn't truth at all. It's just contradictory. What he's saying is we go back to the source of truth who is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And how does God reveal himself to us? He reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us through the scriptures. Now, we understand too, sometimes this can cause attention, especially in our culture today. Well, that just seems misogynistic. That just seems sexist. Well, if the scriptures are handled properly and our humble posture is portrayed correctly, we don't come off as pious. The Bible does not come off as misogynistic. The scriptures do not come off as sexist. It's just acknowledging and understanding the way that God, the Father Almighty, has revealed himself to us. 
We look at Scripture and we can see that, that there is an emphasis put on God the Father, particularly in the Old Testament. We see the earthly understanding sometimes portrayed through people like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see the psalmist and even other prophets throughout the scriptures constantly referring to as God the Father, and never in scripture is God referred to as mother. Now, of course, Jesus did use illustrations, particularly he used the illustration of a hen caring for her chicks, saying that the care that God the Father provides for us is like that. And the liberal theologians will take that and say, hey, there we go, God is feminine. No, God is not feminine. And it's true that God is spirit, and a spirit doesn't have a gender or a sex per se, but constantly throughout Scripture, God is referred to as the Father. And you can't argue the fact that Jesus himself, God incarnate, revealed himself as a man. And so we look at these truths of Scripture and we understand these things are very important and we begin to put the pieces together. And once again, this is not some sort of like, you know, sexist, misogynistic, you know, ancient Near East type of thing that we shouldn't conform to. But instead, what's happening is Scripture is constantly revealing. God is constantly revealing to us through the inspiration, through the writers of Scripture, who He is and how we should conform to Him. Simon Chan points out in an article he wrote in Christianity Today entitled, Why We Call God Father. Israel's idea of God's fatherhood bucked a common trend in the ancient world. Hence, it could not have been an Israelite invention, but rather the result of a long history of living under the revelation of God. And what he's getting at here is, as anthropologists and archaeologists and have begun to study and have studied for ages Near Eastern culture, right? And they've studied that Mid-Eastern culture, and they've looked at Jewish culture versus pagan culture, so to say. What has been observed is that almost every other society around the Near East part where Israel was had not only gods, plural, which was also unique to Jewish history, a a monotheistic belief system, but they also had gods and goddesses. We see this even moving forward into ancient Rome and the times of Jesus and the gospel writings and the post-gospel writings and the epistles. We see that there were not only temples to gods, but there were temples to goddesses. And so the Judeo-Christian belief that there is one God who makes himself known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bucked the trend. It's different. It's different. And we would, of course, reveal that difference to the revelatory nature of God through Scripture and the uniqueness of the worship of the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Chan goes on to say in his article, it is the church's continuity with this narrative of Israel that would lead eventually to the unique Christian doctrine of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see that this referring to God as Father helps us understand that beautiful relationship of the Trinity. Throughout the epistles, we see Paul introducing himself in the letter in the terms of the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It also communicates not only something about the Trinity, but also the relationship. The patristic relationship between not only the way that God created the family to be, but also the way that God is with the Father and the Son. We could look at Matthew chapter 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? 
Jesus didn't say to our God in heaven, our mother in heaven. He said to our Father in heaven. It communicates that God is not distant and impersonal, but is supposed to have that unique love that a father has for his family. And so this humanistic language is used in a way to help us understand the character of God. God, your father. And by that, what does that mean? You love, you care, you protect, you defend, you fight for, you love, you are father. And so we don't want to lose sight of this and how important it is. As we think about who God is and we strive to have correct theology and we hold fast to something like the Apostles' Creed, but more importantly, we hold fast to the teachings of Scripture. It also points to God, Father, as our creator. You go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we understand these things to be revealed to us in Scripture and, of course, contradictory to the Near Eastern cultures in which the bedrock of Judaism and Christianity came from. So truth matters. Truth matters. You can't do what you do. You can't just do you when it comes to theology. And God forbid, you really can't do you when it comes to salvation. So we have to look to the Scriptures. And Scripture reveals to us that God is Father. Now, Psalm 33, you have your thumb there, and we're going to turn there right now. Psalm 33 communicates this in an amazing way. As it talks about the praise that he is worthy of, it talks about the grandeur of his plans and the power of him to bring hope to us as a people. And so there in Psalm 33, let's just begin by looking at the first few verses. Shout to the joy, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody with him in a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and his work is done in faithfulness. And let's just stop there for a moment. As we look at the first point, his power is seen in making all things by his word. We see that the Father is almighty in doing these things by his word. And I love what the psalmist is doing. This is likely David writing this. And one of the things you should do is go read Psalm 32 and reread Psalm 33 and see how they are connected. But here's what David seems to be doing. He begins by saying, look, God is worthy of our praise. And he says so much so that we should shout for joy with these things. And he's kind of showing us that, hey, you know what? We can be different in our worship, right? We can clap at the end of a song, right? But sometimes we need to come in and we need to be reverent. And we need to be quiet and reflective. But here what the psalmist is doing, what David is doing, is he's saying, look, he is a God who is worthy of our shouts of praise, shouts of joy. And he probably has some of his friends right there with him. He says, hey, you go get the lyre. Hey, you go get the harp of ten strings. We're going to sing and we're going to shout to God in joyful praise because of his character and who he is. Let's rejoice in all this that God has given us. And in verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his works are done in faithfulness. 
And then he goes on to praise God for who he is. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of steadfast love for the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all their host. Undoubtedly, David is sitting here, and he's reflecting on Genesis chapter 1, and the beauty of the reality, and the awe-inspiring reality that Jesus, and then God just spoke these things into existence. Hey, let's create heaven and earth. Boom, and it was done, right? How amazing is this? You know what? We could use some things. We'll call them trees. Let's put them there. Boom. Hey, let's put something in the water. Fish. Boom. Then they're there. And you can imagine perhaps David was walking out, maybe probably a little bit warmer than today. But he's seeing the beauty of the sun, feeling the warmth that it gives. Perhaps he's looking at the budding of a tree. Perhaps he's like my family was, looking out the window and finding hope in these six-inch green things coming from our ground, right? Rejoicing in the creation. You could also imagine even on a greater scale, let me ask you this, what is the one thing you have seen that has just brought awe and wonder to your world? Perhaps you're standing on the shore of Lake Huron, or your feet are in the water of Lake Michigan, or your your feet are sinking in the sand of the Pacific Ocean. And you're just absolutely in awe. Maybe some of you were so fortunate to be up north the last few days and see the beauty of the northern lights. Man, how awesome is that? And then, of course, you should have this thought every time you look into a mirror as you see someone who has been made in the image of God. Perhaps not right when you wake up. But no, in all seriousness, seeing the joy of his creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of the mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the seas as a heap. He puts deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. David is giving praise to the Father Almighty because of his power that is demonstrated in creation. And what does it lead him to do? It leads him to shout for joy with praise and to call others into that praise with him and to lead them into a place of holy fear of the one true Father Almighty who created the heavens and the earth. And he commanded it and it stood firm. We should rejoice in praise. We should rejoice in the all that is created. And we should rejoice in the fear that that should create within our souls because he is God. But more importantly, if you are in Jesus, he is Father. Well, the next thing that it does is Father Almighty, his wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing and he frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in his plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Let's stop there for a moment. My kids have had the opportunity to participate in what's called Model UN. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. It's a really cool program in the schools. And what happens is these kids are are put into different teams and they're given a current reality problem that's going on in the world. So you could imagine perhaps uh, 
the war in Ukraine, right? Or you could imagine perhaps famine in some of the places um, in, in Africa. Or you could imagine uh, perhaps uh, religious persecution that's going on in Asia. And these kids are put into teams and they're meant to present not only what the problem is to gain a correct understanding of it, but to also provide solutions that might help the world be a better place. It's a great, great thing to think through and to contemplate. And uh, each of my daughters have done that, and, and they've, they've learned a lot from it. And, and perhaps you've even been to New York City, and you've gone past the United Nations building, and you've seen all those flags flying at equal height, symbolizing the fact that no one nation is greater than the other. And this is the stage that we're supposed to come to in order to solve the world's problems. Does it work? Sometimes. But on the big problems? Not really. But at least we're talking, right? But plans are made, right? Plans are made to stop the war in Ukraine. Plans are made to help relieve famine in Africa. Plans are made to help stop religious persecution in Asia. Plans are made in the White House, right? In the Oval Office to to help our nation be a better place. Plans are made on Congress and Capitol Hill. Plans are made in Lansing to help us be a better state, right? All these plans of man are made, but what does the psalmist say? And this was one of the most powerful kings in the known world at the time. He acknowledges that the Lord brings the counsel of nations nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people to whom he has chosen his heritage. Notice what he does in verse 13 and 14. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, He looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. One of the most powerful kings in the known world at the time is acknowledging as great as his plans are. As great as my plans might be, or Joel's plans might be, to come in tomorrow and create this new ministry model and present it to Pastor Chris and say, people are going to be discipled in this. People are going to be saved through this. People are going to, this is going to strengthen the church. As great as those plans might be, when you go into work and you're meeting on Monday or Tuesday and you've got plans to solve a major problem with the company that you work for, those plans are great, but guess what? The Lord is in control of them. The Lord is in control of them. And he will thwart what he decides is not within his will. And so here is David, this powerful king, recognizing this. And he's also recognizing the power of armies. In 60 minutes, a couple weeks ago, there was a, a whole piece on the U.S. Navy. And the amount of money that is needed just to maintain the Navy, much less grow the Navy, is just mind-boggling. And as powerful as the most powerful navy in the world is, and as powerful as the most powerful military in the world is, because that was David when he's writing this. 
what does he do? He acknowledges the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. God the Father Almighty is a God who will carry out his plans. He will carry out his plans. And yes, sometimes we get the privilege of having the great idea, of doing the great thing that will change an organization or help it, of solving a corporate problem, of helping a a community that is in need of help. But it's in the Lord, the Father Almighty's hands. I do want you to notice in verse 12 and 13, we are called His heritage. If you are part of the body of Christ, if you've received forgiveness for your sins, you are part of His family. And so much better to be on that side of knowing that the Lord is in control than on the other side. But David is trying to communicate to us this idea that even though this might seem frustrating to us, it should make us honor God even more. And he wants us to understand the intimacy and the the intricacy of God's knowledge of all that is happening. And he also wants us to understand the fallacies that we put in earthly things like armies or our own plans. God knows you if you are a child of his. The words of Jesus in John 10, 27 are true. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are words of Jesus. Those are words of God the Father Almighty. And it shows us His power and His might. Third, His love is seen in delivering those who hope in Him. Psalm 33, 18 through 22, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver them, their soul, from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, and He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Now, it's very important to pay attention to the language that is being conveyed here. Yes, generally the Psalms are poetic in nature and, and it's not literal, but here David specifically brings up this idea of famine. Something very, very significant today, but even more so in the culture and the time and in what the Bible communicates. You might recall one of the first famines that were introduced to happens in Genesis where Joseph is in charge of Egypt, right? And his father, Jacob, ends up bringing the family to Egypt in order to fulfill God's plans. God used a famine to bring about his plans. We could also look to, for instance, 1 Kings 17. And in 1 Kings 17, a famine has struck the land. In fact, Elijah has prophesied to the people about a famine that is present and will only grow worse. And he meets a widow, and he says to her, As the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. And she's speaking to Elijah because Elijah has requested food. I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat 
and die. So here it is, a prophet of God has come during a time of famine to a mom who has a son who are so hungry, they have just a little bit of food left, they're going to eat, and then they're going to die. How would you respond if a prophet of God came to you and said, hey, can I have the last bit of your food? The famine was severe, so much to the point where that was her disposition. I've got just a little left. We're going to eat and then die. But then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, sounds so good so far, right? Go, go, go ahead and prepare something for your son. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterwards, you may make some for yourself and your son, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty, and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. Now, what would you have done? The psalmist is, is telling us that even though our soul might wait for the Lord, He is our help and our salvation. He is our help and our shield. In the most dire of times, the psalmist says, David says in verse 21, For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Do we really? This mom was, was put in this position where she had to wonder, If I listen to Him, I'm not going to have anything left. But if I listen to Him... My needs will be met for the entirety of the famine. What do you do? I'm so thankful for her testimony. In verse 15 of 1 Kings 17, So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. And then the woman Elijah and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry, according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. That isn't just some myth. That isn't just some fable. That isn't just some story to inspire you to, to be generous and to work hard to find where you can find your next meal. This is a story to encourage us in God's provision and the power of faith in God when you aren't really sure where the solution to your problem is going to come from. Just as the verses previously, what they do is they, they require us. If God is in control and his plans are the ones that will play, what do we do? It requires us to position ourselves to say, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do instead of me doing what I want to do. Or even worse yet, me telling you what you should do. It requires a humble disposition. And here in 1 Kings 17, we see the beauty of this woman's faith. We see the beauty of her soul waiting for the Lord. We see the beauty of God delivering from death and keeping them alive in famine, according to the psalmist. And here's what the scriptures challenge us to do as we consider Father Almighty. And we see the power of what David is telling us in this psalm. That he is to be praised because of who he is and what he has done and how he has created. He is to be praised because his plans are steadfast and they are greater far greater, infinitely greater than ours. And here he's telling us, in the hard times, wait on him. To put your hope in you. That's what you're calling us to do, God. And so how does this help us? 
How does it, if we're hungry, how does it lead to the end of our famine? If our marriages are hurting, how does it lead to restoration and reconciliation and thriving in a marriage? If our kids are creating just this havoc for us, and we're wondering, God, I've been trying to parent in a good way. I've been trying to show them Jesus, and I find myself in this prodigal moment. God, when is he or she going to return? God, you're the Father Almighty. Why am I going to have to go to the doctor again this week? Why am I going to have this doctor tell me once again, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Live out the end of your days as best as you can. We sit there and we ask God, when will, when will, when will? The disciples probably wondered the same thing. Jesus, when are you going to overthrow the government? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, you weren't supposed to be arrested. When are you going to be released? Wait, wait, Jesus, you weren't supposed to be beaten. When are you going to turn the tables and, and beat them up? Jesus, you weren't supposed to go to the cross and to die with two sinners on your side. Come on, I know you can do it. Change it, change it. Wait a minute, Jesus, you weren't supposed to go into the tomb. When, God? When are you going to change it? When are you going to demonstrate to me? Oh, Lord, our hope in you. And that's the beauty of it. The disciples waited. And instead of when, it became how. And there they experienced the beauty of the resurrection. The beauty of the Jesus that they could touch. The beauty of the Jesus that demonstrated power over death. And I can't sit here and tell you that your marriage is going to be restored. I can't tell you that your child is going to come back. I can't tell you that you're going to be healed. But I can tell you that God's plans are better than ours. And his way is greater than ours. And his power is beyond imagination more powerful than ours. And it's so powerful that if you're a Christian, you can put your hope in him. And if you're not a Christian, you can put your hope in him. And that's the beauty of a passage like this. We praise God because he is the Father Almighty. He understands, he knows, and he can do greatest things he can do is provide salvation for you if you put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come before you. We thank you for the psalmist demonstrating how you, Father Almighty, are worthy of our praise, are in control of all plans the source of our hope and our strength and most importantly 
the author of our salvation. So Father, help us, for those who are in Christ, to have a stronger faith. And for those here who are not a Christian, Father, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. May today be the day they call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. We thank you for your word. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's continue in our worship. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.